Bless the Lord. Let's take our Bibles. Let's do something I don't normally do. Let's stand for the reading of the Word. It's not something I've historically done, but it's a habit I'm becoming more and more in favor of. So that's a foreshadowing of get ready to keep doing it as a regular practice. We're going to the book of Psalms, the 84th Psalm. It also wakes you up a little bit, which helps me out. Psalm 84, and we'll also be going to Psalm 27 and reading several several verses in these two Psalms. Psalm 84 and starting at verse 1, says, To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm for the sons of Korah, how amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Bacar, or I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, make it a well, and the rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength, every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, our God, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed particularly the 10th verse, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Psalm 26 Read the first six verses. The Psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy, I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here as we've worshipped you this morning. We ask you to speak to us. We ask you, Lord, to use this vessel to speak to your people. Have your will and your way in this place, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Bless the Lord. I don't know a lot about American football. But even sports fans here, which is probably leaning predominantly toward one gender, without, sorry if that's a stereotype, but it's probably accurate, even some of us that are, are passing sports fans may have heard of the name of Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was 
a football coach, and if you ever watch the Super Bowl and you can understand that strange football that Americans play, at the end of the Super Bowl, the trophy that they receive is actually called the Vince Lombardi Trophy. And for a little bit of a history, in 1959, Vince Lombardi became the head coach of a struggling team named the Green Bay Packers. And if you know anything about NFL or American football, you know that Green Bay come from the state of Wisconsin, which is right up near the Canadian border. Their fans are famous for their fanatical support of their team. That particular state produces something like a quarter of the cheese in the nation of the United States of America, and so the fans there are known as cheeseheads. And they go to games with giant fake wedges of cheese on their heads for hats. But they are fanatical. They'll turn out when it's snowing. I've seen pictures of them shirtless in the snow, but still wearing their cheese on their heads. When Vince Lombardi took this team, they had been in a a slump. They'd been a losing team for quite some years and he began to turn them around. And then in 1960, Vince Lombardi guided the Green Bay Packers to the championship game where they were leading the other team right until the final quarter of that game and then they lost the game. So they almost became the champions. And the following year in the preseason of 1961, as the team gathered for their preseason training, they were all keen to get back. They knew they were almost good enough to be the best and they wanted to practice some special moves and, and tweak their game and adjust some of their skills to make it good enough to get them over a line. After all, they'd almost won the championship the year before. They just needed that little bit more. And uh, surely they probably thought that just a little bit of improvement was what they needed. But Vince Lombardi, in their very first training session, addressed the team in what has since become a very famous speech in the sporting world and even beyond. And he stood before all these professional athletes that had been playing football since they were just little children and he held up the ball in his hand and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And they probably knew that already. But he was making a statement and what he did was he took them back to the very basics of the game. He said, this is a football, I am the coach, you are the players, this is the field. And those professional athletes, he took all the way back to learning how to throw again, learning how to catch, learning how to tackle, learning what their position was, things that some of them had known as far back as they could remember. Vince Lombardi understood that for them to be champions, they needed to get it right from the foundation upwards. And he went on to become a very successful coach, and I could be wrong, but I think he never coached a team that had a, a losing ratio in any season after that. He won many championships, and I think the Super Bowl was introduced during that period, and I think he won the first two Super Bowls. Any NFL fans can correct me on that if you want to. But with that little anecdote in mind, my message this morning is simply this is a football. This is a football. Amen. In the book of Psalms, we read of a man who was probably David, who spoke of his love for the house of God. His heart was full of what it meant to him to worship the Lord, to praise the Lord, to be able to be in his presence. And he acknowledged that his life was busy with other things, with other responsibilities, with other privileges that he had serving the Lord. He spoke about enemies, he spoke about struggle. 
But he declared that simply to be a doorkeeper in God's house was better than everything this world had to offer. He went on in the second psalm we read to say that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing. And the essence of that desire of the psalmist when he wrote those words was greater than just uh, simply a physical visit to a physical worship structure. There was more to what he was saying than just, I want to physically be where the house of God is. But it was a statement of the fact that his communion with God, his faith with God, his relationship with God, his desire to be with God was more important to him than all of his struggles, than all of his responsibilities, than the throne of Israel, than all of the things that he did and all the things that he took care of. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord that is preeminent above every other thing in his life, every privilege, every position, and every blessing. He said, everything else in my life is a byproduct. It's a side effect. It's an after effect, or it is a result of that one thing. Amen. In Mark chapter 10, the Bible says that there was one that came running and kneeled before the Lord and said to the Lord, Good Master, what shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. And Jesus said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, which is God. He said, You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor thy mother and father. And the man responded to the Lord. He said, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. But then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing that you lack. He said, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come take up your cross and follow me. And if you read on in that passage, you'll see that that young man went away heavy-hearted and broken-hearted because he was unable to surrender that one thing. Sunday night, Brother Fiston ministered to us, and he spoke about this young man that came to the Lord, and he, he mentioned or he made the comment, that the young man's approach to the Lord was like a to-do list rather than a relationship. And that thought has stuck with me since he preached on Sunday night throughout the week that we need to take great care that our relationship with God is not a to-do list. It's not just a list of boxes that we need to tick to say we've kept the commandments and we've done what we are supposed to do. Amen. In Luke chapter 10, we read the story of Jesus coming to a certain village and of Martha receiving him into her house and how she had a sister Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard the word of the Lord. But in verse 40 of Luke 10, it says, Martha was cumbered about much serving. She was busy. She was responsible. She was doing. And she came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's letting me do all the work? I'm in there knocking myself out, cleaning dishes and making tea and coffee and serving food and baking biscuits and doing all these things all at once. And she's sitting at your feet. Don't you care about me, Lord? And the Lord said, Martha, you're careful and troubled or anxious about many things. He said, but one thing 
is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken from her. The message of these verses, the story of Mary and Martha, and even the story of the rich young ruler that came to the Lord, is not that we should do nothing. Do not misunderstand me this morning. That is not the message that we shouldn't do anything, but rather is the question of the why behind the what. Is why we do what we do. Why Martha was so busy serving. Why the rich young ruler kept his to-do list. What is the motive? What is the purpose? What is going on behind the surface? And in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul said these famous words. He said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. That's King James for I haven't arrived yet. I don't consider myself to be where God wants me to go. He said, I'm still working at that. He said, but this one thing I do. He said, forgetting those things which are behind, I'm reaching forward to those things that I know are still ahead of me. Those things that God is drawing me to. Those areas of my life that he is wanting to change and to transform. Those things that he still has that I haven't done for him yet. He said, they're the things I'm reaching for. That's the one thing that I do. Again, Paul wasn't saying, I only do one thing. Because we know, because he did a whole lot of things. What he was saying was, there's one reason why I do everything else that I do. All, all the preaching that he did, all the missionary trips that he went, all the suffering, all of the things that he was willing to endure, they were all born out of one thing. And that was that he was reaching for Jesus. You could never read the life of the Apostle Paul and there's no way that you could twist it. Well, there probably are people that could because what they can do with twisting Scripture is amazing. But... You cannot read his life and suggest that he was advocating a life of relaxing and sitting back and doing nothing. He was a man that said, I am willing to spend and to be spent. And when he got to the end of his life, he said, I've run this race. I've finished this course. I've fought this fight. He gave everything that he had. And when he had nothing left to give, he still gave. But behind all of that was one thing. This one thing. I do. I'm reaching for Jesus. I've got focus. Paul, the apostle Paul, in the midst of everything he went through, had focus like a laser beam. He had his eyes on Jesus Christ. And he said, I haven't got there yet. He said, there's still more. He said, but everything else I'm leaving behind. And I'm reaching. I'm pushing. I'm striving for that one thing. He's saying, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm giving myself. I don't care if they beat me. I don't care if they stone me. I don't care if they put me in prison. I'm doing one thing. One thing. I'm reaching for that prize. I'm reaching for the calling of the Lord. Amen. I believe this morning the challenge from the Lord is that some of us may have forgotten why we responded to the gospel in the first place. I'll say that again. I believe that some of us have forgotten why we got in this thing, why we started to serve the Lord, why we first responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Martha, we're faithful servants. We're working in the kingdom. We're doing this and we're doing that and we're coming about with much busyness, but we've become careful and troubled about many things. 
and we need to get back to what it's all about and remember that this is our football. This is what it's all about. This is where it begins. This book that we put so much confidence in is what it's all about. This, I don't mean in disrespect to the Word of God, but this is our football. This is where it begins. Everything we do is built on this, comes from this, must be validated by that. Amen. It is the reason that we are here. Amen. I love him because he first loved me. That's why I'm here. When I was yet a sinner, the Bible says that he commended or he demonstrated his love toward me by dying in my place. That's my football. That's why I'm here this morning. Amen. And when I ran from him in my own foolishness, found myself in a pig pen covered in filth, he stood at the gate. He looked down the road. And when I woke up and came home, he ran to me. He wrapped me in his arms and said, welcome home, son. That's my football. That's why I'm in this thing this morning. When I mess up, he still forgives me. When I'm weak, he still gives me strength. When I sit in darkness, he will be my light. That's why I'm here. That's what it's all about. Hallelujah. I love to preach the Word of God. I do. Sometimes I'm better at it than others, but I love to preach the Word of God. But it's not why I'm here. I'm honored to serve as your pastor, but it's not why I'm here. It's not why I'm in this place this morning. Love to preach, love to pastor, but I'm here because I love Him. I'm here because He washed my sins away. Because he died in my place, he shed his blood for my salvation, and I want to go to heaven. That's why I'm here. That's my football. I serve him because I love him. I'm amazed daily that he would use me. But whatever I can do for him, whatever I go through, it's because I love him. What's your football this morning? It's not always easy, but we love him. Is there pain involved? Yeah, there is. Sometimes more than you understand. But when all of the clutter of life is pushed aside, and all the busyness and all the tasks and all the responsibilities, at the bottom of that, there's an old chorus that just says, Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. That's why I'm in this thing this morning. If you feel that way, why don't you just lift your hands and worship Him for a moment. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And if it means that in our society, because of its corruption and its immorality, that we have to suffer for the name of the Lord, that's how the New Testament church was born. And if he kept them and the church still grew, he'll keep us and the church will still grow. Amen. Bless the Lord. When the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesian church, if you take the time to examine it and look through it, you'll see that he spoke about love in a variety of context he spoke about being without blame before the lord in love he acknowledged when he wrote to them their love unto all the saints 
He spoke of God's great love for us. He spoke of knowing the love of Christ that passes knowledge. He spoke of forbearing one another in love. He spoke of speaking the truth in love, of being edified or built up in love. He spoke of walking in love. He spoke of love within families. He spoke of love with faith. He spoke of grace and love together. That's all in the one epistle to the Ephesian church. There's some debate and difference of opinions about how long it was between that epistle and the book of Revelation, but somewhere in that time frame, the apostle John is instructed to write letters to the seven churches of Asia. And when in chapter 2 and verse 1, I want you to turn there if you would, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, I'll give you a moment. Revelation 2 and 1 says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, it is usually understood that the word angel there is referring to the pastor or the bishop or the leader of that church. It doesn't mean that they were angels, but the meaning of the word is messenger. No one is suggesting that pastors are angels. But it's, it's written to the messenger or the responsible person for that church of Ephesus. These things, saith he, that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how you can't bear them which are evil, and you've tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. And you've borne and had patience, and for my name's sake you've labored and are not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. When John writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, there are some positive comments. He encouraged them, and he recognized that they've worked hard for the name of Jesus. They've been patient. They've been faithful. They've rejected false prophets. They were doing what they were supposed to do. They were ticking the boxes. It's interesting. I think it's about the first four churches that are written to here dealing with false prophets or teachers is something they all had to face. So we need to be aware of that. But then he said that they had left their first work, sorry, left their first love, and that they needed to repent and do the first works. Now, I'm not going to get into the various opinions about exactly what it means when it says they left their first love. But the word first speaks to us of both first in time and first in priority. Those things were both significant. And the church that is being written to here at some point had a love that somewhere, somehow along the way, they had left. Regardless of how the theologians want to debate exactly what that means, they had something that they no longer had. That word left, when you look into its original meaning, can also include the idea of separation like divorce. And so it's, it's not just you misplaced your car keys. There's a, there's a separation that's taken place. They had left their first love. And that leaving 
or laying aside or even misplacing of that love had impacted their relationship with God enough that for correction to take place, God required repentance and a change of action. Whatever it was, those things, God said, you need to repent and to do the first works, to, to have a change of action. And for the sake of keeping it simple this morning and not getting off into different interpretations, Jesus was approached one day by a scribe, came and was listening to the conversation that was taking place and he decided that Jesus had given some pretty good answers, which was very kind of him to acknowledge the Lord knew what he was talking about. And he said to Jesus, which commandment is the greatest of all? And Jesus responded to him and said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. These commandments that Jesus answered the question with speak of being first in time and in priority. It is the first commandment. It is premier. It comes before anything else. But it is also first in priority because it is greater than anything else. And so I don't think it's a stretch to draw a connection between this and what is written in Revelation chapter 2. You see, when we are first saved, for some of you, that's not long ago. For others, it's a long way ago. But what is consistent across the experience of most people, if not all, is that when we are first born again of water and spirit, when we are first repent of our sins, we're baptized in Jesus' name and are filled with the Holy Ghost, there is a joy and a love that floods our souls, and so there should be, because to be saved from our sins and to have been filled with the Spirit of God is incomparable with anything that this life or this world has to offer. I remember some years ago there was a lady that came to our church who had been told she received the Holy Ghost, but she hadn't had the experience like they had in the book of Acts. And so when we prayed with her and she spoke in other tongues as the Spirit flew through her, she said, I don't know what they told me I had, but it wasn't this. She said, this is different. There's something different about this. And when we have that experience, many of us can share that sentiment. We, can, we remember what it was to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I've told you on more than one occasion that at 11 years of age, when I was filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, there was a few young people that night that were filled with the Holy Ghost. And our little church went down to the local pizza shop to celebrate. And such was the miraculous power of God that I didn't want pizza. Now, you may think that's a small thing, but for the 11-year-old version of me, that was miraculous. Today, even, it would be a miracle. But there is something supernatural that happens when God fills us with His Spirit. And as newborn children of God, we want to please God. We want to serve God. We want to be in God's house. We want to be with God's people. And we're even disappointed that there isn't church every night of the week. And why can't we have a Bible study every day? 
We wonder what's wrong with everybody else that they don't want to do a Bible study at morning tea and afternoon tea every day of the week. Amen. And all of those things that we get involved in as new believers, you see, the first works that are written in Revelation chapter 2 flow out of the first love. What we do for him flows out of our love for him. But if we are not careful along the way, if the the fire of that first love begins to dwindle, we end up with the to-do list and we're doing the works, but we've dropped the football. And it becomes a to-do list and we do what we do begrudgingly because we feel like we have to do those things because it's expected of us and everything we do for the Lord becomes measured and portion controlled. And, well, I think that's enough. I think I shouldn't be expected. This is not about expectation. This is about why. And we start to say, well, I don't want this to impact my life too much. I've got a spouse and kids and a job. And, yes, you do. But when I was born again of water and spirit, it didn't mean you could quit your job, leave your family. But suddenly... This one thing I do. How I approach my job, how I approach my marriage, how I approach my kids, how I serve God, how I attend His house, how I fellowship, what I do, what I don't do, is all born out of this one thing I do. I'm pressing toward the mark. But if the fire goes out, it's no longer the first love or the first works. And in the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesus, Jesus wasn't saying to the church there, you've stopped the things you were doing. Because he acknowledged, you've been faithful. You've endured. Somebody kill that air, please. We've got a few people getting cold. You've endured these things. You've, you've stuck at it. You've, you've, you've stood against false prophets. You've kept the truth. You've, you've held on to my name. You've done all those things. He didn't say they'd stopped. He didn't say they'd stopped. But he still said, there's something I have against you. See, a few weeks ago, before I went to Pakistan, on Sunday morning, I ministered about the need for a spiritual church. If you don't remember that, um, you can get it on the podcast if it's there. I'm not sure yet. And we need, as believers, to mature. We need to grow. We need to progress from milk to meat. We do. Just in the natural, you can't stay a baby forever no matter how hard you try. We need to mature. But it's the why we do. It's the why we want to grow. It's the why we continue to serve. It's the why we continue to love that never changes. Spiritual maturity does not include leaving our first love behind. And we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, I don't have the same passion. And and look, you will grow in understanding and in wisdom and how you approach your walk with God will change as you mature. But that fire, that first love, that thing that produces the first works, that's not a part of immaturity. That's a part of a relationship with God. That continues. That continues. I was talking to somebody the other day. I've been in church a long time. I've seen a lot of things come and go. One thing I've observed is that as long as you keep that fire alive, you'll continue to grow, you'll continue to serve, you'll continue to be involved. But when the fire goes out, what often happens is that 
believers wind back the throttle and they manage their relationship with God and their participation in the kingdom of God at an acceptable level. They're idling. And then people come in and have that new birth experience that they had, but maybe they've got a little bit hazy in their memory about, and their passion and that fire is hot and fresh and new, and that person that's idling on the left-hand side of the road, those young people go past so fast, it's like when a truck goes past you on the freeway. You feel the wind as it goes past. That's the product of choice. It's a product of allowing the fire to die. And here's what else happens as a product of that. Those people lose their joy. They come to church, they look like they eat lemons for breakfast. And when somebody says, we're having an extra service this weekend, you feel like you've just asked them to go out and be stoned with rocks outside the church, you know, put to death, punished, beaten, whipped. When there's others that think, awesome, an extra service. I can be in God's presence again. Now, we try to be careful not to overload people. I'm not, again, this is not about the what. This is about the why. I'm not um, rebuking or correcting people for their involvement. I'm talking about what's going on underneath. Talking about this is our football. We've got to take great care that we don't dial back to simply going through the motions, that we're not ticking a to-do list and repeating it the next day and the next day and the next day because what will happen is there'll come a point where you'll come face to face with Jesus, whether in this life or the next, and he'll say, what have you done? He said, well, I've ticked the list, Lord. And he said, there's one thing, yet you lack. One thing. The problem with the rich young ruler, you know what the problem I think was with that young man? Not only had he allowed those things to get into his heart, but he was convinced he was okay. He was expecting all to say, well done, son. Keep up the good work. Go and be blessed and prosper. But because of who Jesus was, he looked into that young man's heart, saw beyond the list that he ticked. And he said, there's something got a hold of your heart, and it's crippling your relationship with God. You're doing all the right things, but there's one thing you lack. Amen. This is a football. Amen. And we're going to pray in a moment as a church. I'm not going to open the altar. I'm going to ask us to stand and pray together. But before we do that, why don't you take your Bibles and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to give you some homework. Everybody that's still at school thinks seriously. People that just finished school are thinking extra seriously. Sorry, Cass. This is a challenge. Now, obviously, I'm not going to check up. This is between you and the Lord. I'm not you know, going to stand at the door with a clipboard next Sunday morning. This is a challenge that I want each of us who wants to, to take on board. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to read at verse 4. The word in the King James is charity which when you understand the original language comes from the Greek word agape, meaning love that is sacrificial. That's a basic meaning of what it is. But it says, Charity suffers long, is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, 
and endure all things. Now, some of that we might not understand what it all means, so I'm going to read it in a more modern translation. Verse 4 says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way, and it's not irritable. It's interesting in the King James, it uses the expression, thinketh no evil, and we just think that's about thoughts. But when you look into the Greek behind those words, and in the modern translation, it means it keeps no record of being wrong. It means you're not keeping a list, not a score sheet. Verse 6 says, It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Now, this is the challenge for those that want to take it. When you're in your time of devotion with the Lord, when you're in that time of prayer and you read the word of the Lord, take this passage, these four verses, I think it's four, four verses of Scripture, and if you've got more than one Bible or you might just have to use the same Bible, I want you to put them in parallel with the two commandments in Mark chapter 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like, namely this, love your neighbor as yourself. Put them together and ask yourself, my love for the Lord, how does it measure through this filter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? My love for my neighbor, how does that measure when I pass it through the filter of those first four verses there? 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7. And if need be, if need be, take the Word of God in your hand. You might think it's funny, but you might say, this is a football. <laughs> Go back to basics. Why did I get in this thing in the first place? What is it all about? Do I need a refreshing of the first love so I can do the first works? Do I need to not complicate things but go back? You know, the Lord called me to preach when I was 17. My Bible knowledge at 17 years of age was okay. It was nowhere near what it should have been because of my lack of application, but I was privileged to sit under wonderful teaching of a great man of God. I grew up in that church. But at 17 years of age, I can remember clearly simply wanting to do whatever I was asked to do. I wanted to serve God. Didn't preach great messages. My mum remembers them. She's probably the only person. I don't even remember. Some of the things that she brings up, I'm like, nope, don't remember preaching that. But that's what mums do. Thank God for our mums. Amen. But it was just, Lord, whatever I can do to serve. And along the way, over the last 30 years, as the Lord's decided to use me to demonstrate how awesome He is and given me various responsibilities, from time to time, I deliberately practice, specifically praying, Lord, take me back to the same motive again. I've got all these responsibilities and life's got more complicated. You get married, you have kids, you get responsibilities and jobs and all this stuff. But Lord, take me back to that 17-year-old mindset. Just want to serve you because I love you. No other reason. Just love you, Lord. This is my football. Stand with me if you would.